This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, our respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Shanto Iyengar. Shanto is professor of, philo- of sorry, political science at Stanford University. He's written extensively on news media and political communication in contemporary democracy. His most recent book is titled Media Politics, A Citizen's Guide. It was originally published with Norton in 2015, and a new edition is forthcoming this year. His current research focuses on political polarization, framing effects, and political affect. Hi, Shanto. Oh, hi. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Well, thank you for joining me on Why We Argue. I wanted to talk to you uh, specifically about some of your more recent work on political polarization. Um, Now, it's common among politicians and pundits and commentators to lament the polarization of American politics. Um, It's not often discussed what this word means or what exactly is being lamented. I take it, though, that polarization is more than simply the persistence of disagreement, but refers to um, unbridgeable gaps or the the, the inability for political opposition, uh, political opposition parties to cooperate. Um, So maybe a place to start is um, can you you tell us a little bit about the different senses of polarization? Sure, sure. So uh, so in political science, uh, there's an ongoing uh, debate over the concept of polarization. Uh, we all agree, all you have to do is look at the uh, developments in Washington, the attempts to pass legislation, uh, the gridlock, the inability of Democrats and Republicans to get together on compromises. Everyone agrees that that political elites uh, are polarized in that sense. Uh, they have um, opposing, their views on the issues are so divergent that it's impossible for them to find uh, common ground. So the, the metric uh, for, for measuring polarization is ideological divergence or disagreement. And as I, as I indicated, there is general agreement that political elites uh, in Congress or the state legislature, uh, the party elites, are definitely polarized. Now, when you apply that standard of ideological polarization to the ordinary citizen, uh, the situation is a bit uh, uh, murkier. It is not clear that the rank and file has followed suit and, and moved to the respective, uh, the Democrats to the liberal extreme and the Republicans to the conservative extreme. There's an ongoing debate about that question, uh, whether, whether public opinion has indeed polarized. However, my, my work uh, and the work of my colleagues has has argued in favor of an alternative definition of polarization, 
And this alternative uh, definition comes with different uh, uh, yardsticks. And in, in, in this logic, uh, using this alternative definition, there is no ifs and buts. Uh, we show that the mass public is, is, is very much polarized. So this alternative definition is, is, is this idea of uh, partisanship as a social identity. Uh, social identity is just, you know, any form of psychological affiliation with a group. And it is, it is well established, uh, based on decades of research in social psychology, that group affiliation, even when it is based on the most trivial of characteristics, it triggers positive feelings for the in-group and conversely negative feelings uh, for the out-group. So in a sense, as soon as you identify with a group, I mean, that is tantamount uh, to the onset of group polarization. And of course, in societies with, with deep cleavages, uh, sometimes uh, this sense of identity can result in uh, widespread uh, political instability and in violence, uh, civil war. Uh, certainly, I can cite any number of examples. So uh, Using this definition, the idea that when you identify as a Democrat or a Republican, you then begin to think of the opposition, uh, you begin to think of them as a stigmatized outgroup. You can see how uh, 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 by this standard, uh, uh, party identification essentially becomes a litmus test for an individual's personal worth, an individual's character. And interestingly, we could talk about this later, perhaps, uh, we have some pretty compelling evidence uh, that interpersonal ties in the United States are increasingly constrained by party politics. Marriage across party lines, for instance, is very limited. Uh, About 15% of households today have party registrations in which one person is Democrat and the other is Republican. 50 years ago, uh, that number was much higher. So this affective definition of polarization suggests uh, that for most of us, uh, party politics is no longer something we rely on when we go into the polling booth. It is something that now sort of infuses our everyday life, our everyday interactions, and our perceptions of others. And so that's excellent. So let me, um, uh, do you think that, this um, a more identity-based conception of polarization um, helps to you know, plays an explanatory role in uh, thinking through the problem of political deadlock. That is the the, the problem of polarization in in, in the purely uh, uh, party elite sense. That is, does the identity uh, sense of polarization and does the fact that we are polarized along these identity metrics? Help explain why there's so much um, uh, gridlock uh, in the political oh, world. Yes. I believe so. I believe that when you have this kind of affectively suffused sense of uh, partisanship, it delegitimizes outcomes uh, that have been enacted by the opposing party. I mean, the classic case uh, is uh, the Affordable Care Act. So the Affordable Care Act, there's very good public opinion data out there suggesting that today it has majority support. Yet uh, the Republican Party, I've lost track of how many times uh, they attempted this, uh, uh, they have made systematic attempts to repeal it. Why? Uh, Because it was a a law enacted by the Democrats and the Obama administration, and there is this strong sense that because the Democrats are so wrong, 
and, and have the the values all upside down, uh, it must be repealed. Right. Um, is there is there a similar? I, I expect the answer to this is yes, but I, I want to hear the elaboration. Um, given that there are these two different ways of understanding what polarization is all about, um, is there a similar debate about um, the extent to which um, the United States citizenry now is, as as of late, especially polarized? Yes, we have. I, I wouldn't want to say that there's a, a voluminous um, a body of uh, literature out there on the cross-national uh, comparative side. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few papers. Uh, one of the things that, that makes the situation a bit more extreme in the United States is that we have only two parties. So it's easier uh, to have a sort of a Manichaean conception of the world, you know, the good guys versus the bad guys. Uh, when you have a multi-party system, things get a bit more complicated and more nuanced, and there are parties all over the spectrum, and therefore you may you may not get the extreme level, the virulent level of animus that we, we see today. But the evidence, uh, we have written a couple of papers uh, where we've actually run the same tests in the United States and in other divided societies, such as uh, Belgium, for instance, which is deeply divided along linguistic lines, and Spain, and we find uh, that the party divide, the, the affective, the level of intensity of the partisan identity in the United States is stronger uh, than in these European counterparts. Interesting. Um, and it, but I take it that there are some uh, in political science who contend that polarization is not especially severe these days. It just seems that way because of changes in the ways in which you know, media reports things and changes in the, the frequency with which we're able to access uh, political information is that we have the, only the perception of deeper polarization. Is that true? Well, there are some people who uh, certainly when you buy into the uh, the definition of polarization as uh, diverging ideological preferences, there are clearly people who will argue that the American electorate is centrist and not extremist and therefore not polarized. And there are also people who will argue that this image of ideological polarization is illusory. It's something that stems from the media's penchant uh, to focus on controversy and conflict. Agreement is not newsworthy, and therefore the information one gets from the media tends to uh, highlight cases of uh, disagreement and divergence. And therefore, in that sense, you may get an exaggerated sense of the level of polarization. Great. Um, so w- one of your recent articles um, finds that uh, polarization in this uh, sort of identity uh, uh, index sense, um, as you say, is accompanied not only by increasing levels of distrust of the other side, but as you were mentioning, also a range of negative affects. Um, uh, and that these, um, uh, these additional affective responses uh, you find bleed over even into um, uh, partisans' evaluations of their opponents' non-political behavior. So once polarization happens in the identity sense, um, everything the people on the other side do looks yes. suspicious or awful or disgusting or off-putting uh, uh, to you and, and your, uh, your, your, your party affiliates. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yes, there's a, there's a burgeoning literature. It's really become a sort of a hot topic in political science now to show the extent to which uh, political affiliation, uh, whether you think of yourself as a Democrat or Republican, has become a litmus test uh, for your personal worth. 
Uh, it's a measure of your of your character. Uh, and some of the some of the uh, tests have been really actually quite quite humorous. Uh, so uh, uh, Steve Nicholson, a political scientist at the University of California at Merced, gave people a set of faces, and the task, uh, the respondent's task, was to judge the faces for their attractiveness. Uh, in some cases, he simply gave them the faces and some innocuous cues about the person's age, where they lived. In other cases, he added that they were active in the Democratic or Republican Party. And once the party queue was in there, people evaluated co-partisans more attractive, the <laughs> face. So here we have a kind of a physical judgment about attractiveness, which is being colored uh, by politics. Uh, any number of other cases which are not, not so humorous, uh, more, <laughs> more ominous, in fact, uh, we have uh, resume studies where employers have been sent uh, CVs, and uh, when the applicant indicates their political profile, uh, employers are willing to discriminate against those on the other side. Uh, we also have uh, a variety of uh, studies. The online, uh, uh, the onset of online dating has created a wealth of, of you know, big data, <laughs> where we have we have millions of cases where we can actually track and see what is it that that predicts compatibility. What is it that people are seeking in a potential spouse or companion, a long-term companionship? And it turns out it's a really striking result. This is my colleague at the Stanford Business School, uh, Neil Malhotra's work. Uh, He has shown in a series of papers that political ideology is the strongest predictor of dating, of dating preferences. Uh, And it's a very impressive finding because uh, most people who go online in search of a mate they are actually quite rational and strategic, and they do not advertise their politics. Politics, everyone understands, is controversial. And so the fact that ideology is the number one predictor indicates that people are going out of their way to unearth that information. And so that's a very powerful result. And we have actually done a study, which is forthcoming in the Journal of Politics, where we track uh, intermarriage over the last 50 years. And it turns out the level of intermarriage across the party divide in the United States has fallen off quite significantly. Uh, today, uh, less than 20% of households are where you have a, a, a one, one partner being Democrat and the other being Republican. In the vast majority of cases, you have homophily. That's interesting. So is there an element to this also – um, you know, again, just as a, a you know, I'm a philosopher, so all of my uh, theorizing about the world is is, is largely armchair. Um, but um, uh, is there also a dimension of this where um, polarized uh, partisans, in in your sense of the term, this identity sense of polarization, um, that the uh, as the polarization um, uh, deepens or, or takes a firmer grip, um, the polarized person um, comes to see more uh, a greater share of per, of uh, interpersonal behavior as being um, politically significant that um, uh, that part of part of what happens in polarization is you come to see people's behavior as increasingly saturated with political cues 
Well, it's more like the political queue becomes energized and it becomes so super salient that you now uh, go into a grocery store and you look at particular products and you think about, oh, this product is something that is used by my opponents and perhaps I should be purchasing something else. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a coincidence that in the aftermath of the, uh, the, the school shootings, we now see uh, corporate America actually beginning uh, to take a position, uh, you know, on the NRA, for instance. Uh, many of these companies have terminated uh, the various discount programs uh, that they had offered to NRA members. The fact that the political queue is now uh, penetrating the decision-making apparatus of corporate America tells me uh, that there is this concern that uh, companies do not wish to alienate uh, voters uh, in the form of consumers. Right. So, and, you know, the um, the the controversy, of, well, at least in some parts of the country, it's a controversy every year with what the oh. Starbucks um, holiday cup is going to look like. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> uh, and that somehow um, even, uh, you know, where one buys coffee or, or, or how one you know, carries around a coffee cup that signals or reveals where they buy coffee. This has become a, a, a mode That's of right. political expression now, in a way. That's right. It's just like uh, when you think about uh, NASCAR, you know, NASCAR is associated with uh, a particular point of view, whereas uh, different recreational activities, uh, going to the gym, uh, drinking wine as opposed to beer, all of these have become uh, politicized. These are markers now, not just of your lifestyle and your consumption behavior, but they're now uh, also markers of your political values. Yeah, and I guess that they're, they're, in some cases they're not only markers; they're actually sort of overt ways of expressing your your you know, sort of carrying around the Whole Foods tote bag. That's right. Is a way of expressing your your political profile, right? That's right. You're signaling you're signaling where you stand, and in a sense, as more and more people choose to do this uh, to make more visible their political affiliations, uh, that in and of itself, given what we know about identity, that's going to make the, the problem of polarization. It's going to exacerbate the problem. Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit? Because I know that you also have written extensively. You work a lot on sort of media and mass communication. Um, what do you think the role of the media is in uh, this identity sense of polarization? Does the media reflect it? Does the media generate it? Does the media sustain it? Um, uh, what role does the media play in this phenomenon? Well, once again, it's an ongoing uh, subject of research. I think it's too early to come up with a, an unequivocal verdict on the question, does the media cause uh, polarization, or is it instead uh, a reverse logic by which uh, polarization has done something to the media market? Uh, my own view, uh, the work is ongoing, but my own view is that the media market has changed quite profoundly in the aftermath of the IT revolution. Once the Internet came along and we had multiple um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of news sources out there, bloggers, uh, individuals posting comments on events, it became possible uh, for people who had a particular point of view, liberal or conservative, to seek out information providers that they found compatible or congenial to their own point of view. And the development of Fox News in the world of cable television certainly 
signaled the fact that uh, that Fox News rapidly became the number one rated cable news source told uh, producers, the people who were contemplating entering uh, the media market as providers, that sent a very strong signal that there is sufficient demand for biased news, for news with a particular slant. And of course, the recent performance of MSNBC in the aftermath of the 2016 uh, election, Rachel Maddow has actually on many occasions become the number one watched cable host um, uh, she has surpassed uh, Sean Hannity in several on several occasions. So that that clearly tells us that there is demand for politicized news, and so uh, people uh, like the legal scholar uh, Cass Sunstein have argued that this this uh, tendency to uh, engage in selective uh, consumption, selective exposure, is going to create so-called echo chambers. And if you're only getting information that is one-sided, clearly that is going to intensify your your animus towards your opponents and make you even more uh, your 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 level of in-group favoritism is going to be still higher interesting um so i, I like to you know even uh, even in episodes of this podcast like this one where we talk uh, uh, largely about a, a particular kind of dysfunction um i, I try to end at least on uh, the possibility of some uh, 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 some positive prescription. Um, so what, what do you think can be done about polarization? I take it that there, there, you know, there, there are two questions, sort of two different sort of concerns lurking here. One is um, whether polarization in your identity sense, once it's sort of um, uh, taken hold, uh, whether anything can be done to reverse it or to, to, to modify it or to soften it, um, and then there's a different question, which is whether um, polarization is something that can be prevented. Right. Uh, so I think one one thing that we can say for sure, there's quite a bit of research uh, in, in various disciplines on personalization of, of group stereotypes uh, tends to be uh, something that moderates views. Uh, I think the classic example is immigration. Uh, when you ask Americans about uh, should we... Um, Cut down on immigration, you get 80 to 90 percent of them saying, yes, we've got too many immigrants and let's make it harder to come into the United States. Then you give them a case study. Here's a doctor from Sri Lanka and he's, you know, interested in should we give him a temporary work permit? It's just the opposite. 75 to 80 percent say, yes, let him come in. So there is this tendency that when you have interpersonal contact and, and you personalize the definition of a group, the level of animosity seems to be <laughs> almost erased. Uh, people are much more likely to say nice things about an art group member, an individual, uh, and certainly they are towards the group as a whole. So I think interpersonal contact is something that might be might be a big plus. I think we need to encourage uh, uh, interpersonal relations across the party divide. And how you do that, of course, is, is a complex, complex and difficult uh, task, given the fact that Geographically, we seem to be quite segregated. And there's also some very interesting data. It used to be that people would say the only place you're going to run into someone from the other side politically is at work. Because at home, uh, most neighborhoods are pretty much, you know, homogeneous. But even <laughs> there's some very interesting data. My colleague Adam Boniker has been tracking the monetary donations made by members of different occupations. And he's showing that over time, 
occupations are becoming more and more homogeneous in where they give their money, which of course is a signal uh, of their political uh, preference. And so pediatricians, for example, are, are, are quite liberal, uh, whereas surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, are quite conservative. So it's quite likely... Yes, I, I, I've often wondered about my dentist. <laughs> it seems to me that so the workplace may not be uh, the the uh, the the diverse information environment that it once was. But anyway, the bottom line is interpersonal contact. It seems to me to be a plus. Now, a second, uh, and this is not really. A, I'm not recommending this as a possible treatment. But other people have argued that you can always make party polarization secondary to some other cleavage. All you have to do is introduce a new cleavage that trumps uh, partisan politics. So if President Trump were to launch a preemptive strike on uh, North Korea, uh, one could imagine that the country would then be, in a sense, temporarily at least uh, uh, unified. Uh, They would react as Americans rather than as uh, Democrats or Republicans, although given Given the polarizing nature of this administration, one wonders if uh, one wonders if even that might not work. Oh, that's a grim. Uh, <laughs> that's a grim prescription. Um, uh, so, I'm, 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 I want to ask one last question because you've been you've been very generous with your time. Um, this is sort of more of I, I, I fear it's sort of more of a philosopher's question. Um, do you think that? Uh, with respect to the the point you were making uh, just a, a little bit earlier about personalization uh, uh, being uh, one way to, uh, uh, to 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 find our, our, our to find a path out of the the polarization and the deadlock, um, do you think that uh, you get these divergent results? Or you ask people about immigrants in the abstract, and they have tend to have one particular view. You ask them about some particular person who is an immigrant and an immigrant and they, they have the, the, the opposing view. Um, how much of that do you think has to do with um, uh, a feature of uh, sort of a polarized political environment where um, the liberals are getting their portrait of con- the conservatives from their fellow liberals and the conservatives are getting their understanding of what liberals are like from fellow conservatives rather than um, uh, finding out what liberals are like by you know, actually in interacting with some liberals and uh, finding out what conservatives are like by interacting with conservatives on the liberal side? Do you think that there's Yes, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, social networks are homogeneous, and, and, uh, and the case of online social networks uh, are especially homogeneous. So work on Facebook shows very clearly, even though these are weak ties, uh, networks with weak ties, that basically uh, all the links you're getting in your newsfeed, if you're on Facebook, happen to be people who think very much like you. So yes, I believe that that is indeed a feature of the current environment that contributes to this kind of uh, stigmatization of the of the opposition. Do you think Do you think it would help just to just to shut off social media for a little while? <laughs> I believe I don't think it's a coincidence that the uh, the the this accelerated uh, uh, timeline uh, the acceleration of uh, polarization in the affective sense of the word coincides almost exactly with the development of these online uh, social media forums. Uh, I think there is uh, pretty good circumstantial evidence to suggest that one had a causal impact on the other. <laughs> um, 
we'll leave it to the audience's uh, uh, imagination to uh, discern or to infer which direction you think that causal arrow goes. Uh, but I, I think that's clear enough. Um, uh, Shanto Iyengar, you've been you've been very generous. I want to I want to thank you for uh, for talking to me today on the Why We Argue podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you, listener, for tuning into the podcast, which I remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on both Twitter and on Facebook, uh, if you still do those things after hearing this, uh, at uh, ampersand public humility. That's one word, public humility. Uh, bye for now.